rebuild our armed forces, and take care of our troops and our veterans. And they have my word, I will do it. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotrahora. Hong Kong police arrest nine people linked to a plot to make explosives. This happens right before the election debate on Wednesday. U.S. stocks fell while the euro rebounded versus the dollar, showing after the American economy showed that it is struggling to regain momentum and Asian futures track the retreat in the U.S. Will Hong Kong's markets be spooked by these new events? We'll ask Sung Kai's financials, Kenny Weng. Next, Parry International's Gavin Parry joins us to talk about the slowdown in China. And our last guest, Knight Frank's Thomas Lam, gives us uh, his company's outlook on China and Hong Kong's property markets. Connie Bolland is our guest host today. Good morning, Connie. Good morning, Renita. So, Connie, the discussion on democracy has arguably been left to a point where it has literally become explosive. (laughs) Are things about to take a dangerous turn? Well, I think most people have got used to this uh, diametrical uh, views uh, of the pandemocrats and the pro-government, uh, pro-Beijing uh, camps. So uh, I don't think any 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 further sort of uh, aggravation will will, will 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 occur. People already have you know, set something in mind. Yeah, well, uh, it's uh, interesting to find sort of nine explosives being created in an abandoned uh, uh, TV studio in Sai Kung. Well, in the U.S., an unexpected drop in factory output showed that manufacturing is sputtering. Now, is it a sign that the stronger dollar and the drop in fuel prices may still be rippling through the economy? Here's MUFJ's Union Bank's uh, chief economist, Chris Rupke. The news was not good from the Fed's own economic data report on industrial production falling 0.2% in May after a 0.5% drop in April. Maybe Fed officials will not notice when they sit down to talk about monetary policy on Tuesday and Wednesday this week. This report is a mild disappointment, but we would not rush to the conclusion that this is somehow tied to the strong dollar rally and the sharp drop in American exports at the start of the year, exports which now are slowly recovering. We still expect this factory output data to pick up later this summer. We better hope so, because if industrial production cools any further, it may be an indication that we are closer to the end of the business cycle than the beginning, with the Fed not even having started raising interest rates yet. 
U.S. stock indices were all in the red. The S&P 500 slid half a percent to 2,084. The Dow Jones was down six-tenths of a percent to 17,791. And the Nasdaq also down 21 points or four-tenths of a percent to 5,029. And Asian futures are also down following uh, the U.S. economy data and the lack of progress in talks on Greece. The head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, has warned that if Greece goes bankrupt, it would take the EU into uncharted waters. He has urged all sides trying to negotiate an end to the Greek debt crisis to go the extra mile. He said that a solution to the crisis had to be found quickly. We need a strong and comprehensive agreement with Greece. And we need this very soon. By strong and comprehensive, I mean an agreement that produces growth that has social fairness, but it is also fiscally sustainable, ensures competitiveness, and addresses the remaining sources of financial instability. Such a strong and credible agreement with Greece is needed, not only in the interest of Greece, but also of the euro area as a whole. But which side is going to make the next move? Here's Bloomberg's and Nico's Chris Aloras. Uh, we've heard the, the European Central Bank President, uh, Mr. Mario Draghi, saying that the ball is squarely in, Greek, in the Greek government's court. The Greek government, on the other hand, is saying that it has submitted concrete and detailed proposals uh, which are enough uh, for the country to meet its budget targets next year. And it's now up to the creditors to respond to the Greek proposals and in, uh, invite the Greek government to resume uh, negotiations. Um, there is a euro area finance Minister's meeting uh, uh, on Thursday in Luxembourg. In Luxembourg uh, there's no uh, uh, prospect for a deal inside by then. Um, uh, we are definitely entering uh, the end game. EU officials and German politicians have vented their frustration at Greece with time running out for reaching a debt deal. Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras says that it was up to international creditors to turn to realism, but it's hard to understand what he really wants. Here's Eric Nielsen, chief global economist at Unicredit Bank. I don't know what he's really fighting for because as far as I can judge, the, the, the two choices he really is fa- uh, facing is either he signs up to some sort of reforms and get on the page of the Europeans or he will descend or the country will descend into chaos for sure. Uh, it, at the end of the day, at one stage, the ECB cannot continue the so-called ELA anymore. That's the emergency credit for the Greek banks. If they, if you really come to the stage, you run into arrears to the IMF or what have you. So, so this is a very bleak uh, alternative he has. And, and 50% of the Greek population says they want a compromise. So I, I really don't know why they're still messing around with, with, with these uh, administrative details. Connie, why are they still messing around? Or do you think an end game is in sight? I think... Greece is playing a very dangerous game here. I mean, as um, we heard just now, and they are only haggling over very small details in the reform package and then pension, uh, pensioners' age, for instance. But the fact of the matter is they've got to pay 1.5 billion euros to the IMF at the end of the month, and they run out of money. And if they don't have the emergency loans provided by the ECB and um, 
I mean, I just can't see how they can get on with things, and the voters didn't like it. If they think that they can um, play a game game here and uh, get more out of it, I think they are just getting themselves into big trouble because what are the other options? To go default and capital control, and you know, already a lot of the, the money has left the private banks in, in Greece. So what is uh, what is what do you mean by they are getting themselves into big trouble? I mean, do you think this is where everything falls apart? They're out of the union. Well, if they don't have the money to roll over the loans, then they they basically go bank default and walk out of the negotiation table. And so you know, um, I, I can't see how things will develop from there because then then Greece will will probably have to impose capital control. Yeah. Doesn't look good. Situation doesn't look good. Well, back to Hong Kong. Hong Kong's democracy debate has taken an, an explosive turn. The Hong Kong police said that they have detained nine people for planning to detonate homemade bombs, two of them as they were preparing to test the chemicals that could be used to create an explosive. Let's bring in our first guest uh, for this morning, Kenny Wen, who is the financial um, wealth management strategist at Singhankai Financial. Good morning, Kenny. Good morning, Vinita. So, Kenny, are local markets going to be spooked uh, by this event in Hong Kong, you know, of these uh, nine people planning to detonate bombs? Uh, definitely, yes. And I would say it's only one of the uncertainties this week, including Greece problem, including the Federal Reserve meeting, including the mass outbreak potentially uh, spread out in Asia. This all will impact or uh, affect the Hong Kong stock market, including the uh, political reform package and the yesterday news. But I believe that uh, compared Relatively speaking, yesterday news should be have a, a relatively small impact on the news because uh, for most Hong Kong people, maybe already expected that the political reform package uh, may not be passed. So uh, this issue may be already reflected in the equity prices. I see. Okay, so it's certainly a week of multiple uncertainties of all those events that you just mentioned. Yeah. Which one do you think has the greatest impact on the markets? I would say it's the mass, in, mass outbreak in South Korea because if uh, Hong Kong and Korea is highly linked and Hong Kong is a very crowded uh, city, if the diseases spread into Hong Kong, then the impact will be huge. Uh, let me uh, remember what happened in 2003, the SARS issue. But uh, isn't it still early to sort of make that call? Or would you say the panic has actually begun to spread in the markets and we're going to see volatility? Uh, we'll have the volatility in the Hong Kong market. And I, say, I, I agree that the chance is still small, but we need to prepare. I see. Connie, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think, uh, you know, this combination of events is going to sort of rock things here? Uh, certainly. I think, you know, uh, June historically hasn't been a good month for investors anyway. And this week seems to be the combination of uh, a lot of events. Um, you know, you have the uh, the reform package uh, uh, being voted and you have the Greek uh, s s uh, sort of uh, really uh, dilemma and the Fed is going to uh, have its FOMC meeting on Wednesday and uh, decide whether they will be, or not decide, but actually um, communicate to the investors what their interest rate uh, plans are. So, you know, all this are going to impose a lot of uncertainty on the Hong Kong stock market. But whether that will impose a very long-term effect, um, I guess, you know, um, it probably is 
uh, too early to say, but I, I guess a lot of these are just sort of like uncertainty factor. When it's out of the way, perhaps the market will then have a more clearer picture of what's going to happen. So, Kenny, when it comes to, you know, sort of planning your portfolio, what are you advising your clients to do right now? For very short term, say this week, we will use a wait and see approach and suggest to stay on the sidelines uh, until uh, several uncertainties become clear, then the investor can position themselves. But for the uh, second half of this year, we will focus on Asia and suggest clients to diversify global and use some uh, correction to add their exposure. So when you say Asia specifically, where? Uh, we like uh, Hong Kong and uh, India. And are you talking equities? Are you talking bonds? What? What uh, are you talking ETFs? Uh, basically, we prefer equities over bonds because in terms of the variations, in terms of the economic growth. So we like uh, Asia equities, but we need to be diversified. In the past few years, investors usually will use the approach of risk on, risk off. But I think that the market is, is, is getting very volatile. So being a truly diversified global portfolio is the key to uh, uh, subject to the volatility. So what about Japan? I mean, economists are pushing back uh, the Bank of Japan's easing calls after Kuroda put the brakes on a weaker yen last week. Yeah. Do you agree with Kuroda's statement that further yen, yen weakness is unlikely? The first quarter GDP growth uh, in Japan is quite good. It's much better than the market forecast. But in terms of the CPI, excluding the, the, the sales tax effect is only 0%. So we still expect that there's chance to increase uh, the amount of quantitative easing. So uh, we, we say that uh, September will be a key uh, month. For example, uh, US may raise interest rate and Japan may uh, enhance the quantitative easing in, uh, in September. All right, Kenny. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's thank Kenny you. Wen, and he is a wealth management strategist at Sungkai Financial. All right. Well, the Nikkei is uh, now down four tenths of a percent to twenty thousand three hundred and twelve. Australia's ASX uh, two hundred up just slightly, point oh two percent to five thousand five hundred and forty two, and Seoul's Kospi up point oh uh, eight percent. Excuse me to two thousand. And 44. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.12 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.44 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and eight cents and one US dollar and 55 cents. Having discussed for so long, we can finally get it. Of course, we shouldn't stand still. Let's have one person, one vote to have a say in Hong Kong's future. A regime of universal suffrage that complies with the basic law. Five million voters electing the chief executive for the first time. I'm Carrie Lam. For our future, cherish this opportunity. Please support the universal suffrage proposal. 2017. Make it happen. The time is now 8.17 a.m. and you're listening to Money for Nothing on RTHK Radio 3. Well, China's economy has been growing at the slowest pace in 24 years. 
Consumer price inflation rose 1.2% in May, lower than the expected 1.3%, and well below the 1.5% rise in April. How long will the situation continue? Let's bring in Parry International Trading's Managing Director, Gavin Parry. Good morning, Gavin. Morning. Thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. Gavin, you know, there's been some, uh, you know, different uh, sort of opinion amongst analysts. Uh, Some of uh, them who have been guests on this show have said, well, you know, uh, the slowdown is bottoming out. Do you agree? Well, I I think it's um, it's more a morphing of the... um of the economy and the situation uh, that's going on in the mainland. It's, it's, more, it's very much um, following what, what Beijing, the plenum, and, and um, the directives have come down, which is basically morphing the economy from export-led to demand-driven. Uh, so a lot, a lot of the policies that are coming forward at the moment on the reform and deregulation aspects of financial services in particular is very much akin to stoking domestic demand um, and also follows parallel with the urbanisation policies. So... In relation to a, a slowdown in inverted commas, we, we think it's more a fact of, of kind of changing track. And it's during this transition period that uh, obviously you see a lot more volatility. But in the medium to long term, um, you know, we just think that it's, uh, it's very much a very good long story. So can you explain that uh, in some detail for our listeners, specifically about financial services and, and the changes thereof stoking domestic demand? Yes, certainly. Um, well, obviously, the one, of the one of the major aspects of the urbanisation policy push is to uh, create uh, larger urban centres. And, and one of those aspects is that, obviously, the services aspect of, um, <clears throat> of, of cities and, and towns and so forth is, is, it tends to be a lot higher with a higher population. So um, that's one of the aspects of people looking at the, the manufacturing numbers versus the services numbers and the kind of positive cannibalisation there of, of contractions in manufacturing which again um, uh, falls in line with the fact that the, the government is very much moving the economy away from being um, orientated on, on uh, exports. Now, one of the main aspects here we think is, is purely just through the demographics. I mean, obviously, as everyone knows, China's very, very large, but it's very much followed the template of, say, the Japanese model of, of going heavy industry um, and then moving up the value chain of manufacturing, which mm-hmm. then Korea basically uh, modelled as well, and China's kind of done the same two-step but the one of the major differences we think is the fact that korea and japan still very much relying on the export markets for their production whereas china has the potential for uh, a lot of that to be soaked up domestically via demand and i think that's definitely where the government's going and in terms of sort of building and focusing on these urban centers are we looking at surely we're not looking at the top tier cities what are your thoughts well, no, it's, um, it, I mean, the way we kind of view China, and, and you know, I've been here since 99, but it's, it's a case of, um, we look at China as kind of like the US in the 30s, where they industrialized the East Coast West, mm-hmm. kind of look at China as urbanizing from the East Coast West, and um, you're already seeing a lot of the manufacturing um, move from the coastline, and that started quite a, you know, many, many years ago with like Foxconn and so forth, moving towards more Western provinces with the government uh, rolling out urbanization and infrastructure. So... Um, you know, this, this is an ongoing theme, an ongoing process, and um, and for us as well, it's it's also underpinning the aspect that um, while there may have been a, a um, deceleration of the growth, let's say, we, we don't really see it as a slowdown. And also in, in that respect as well, you know, demand for base commodities and, and so forth continues to go. It's just that we've seen that exponential push um, in, in in the um, commodity prices and so forth. But you know, seven odd percent growth, particularly given the sizes. So you think about the multiples that implies, is still very, very, very decent. Connie, yeah, I mean, 
uh, Perry, would you see what kind of growth drivers in China uh, over the next few years? Well, what we, we, we really see the financial services as, as the next, let's say, uh, sector. Um, I mean, we've obviously had manufacturing and, and, and um, to a degree high tech, but it's, again, following in line, if you, if you look at what the government's basically um, policies are trying to do, it's really stoking domestic demand. And, and one way to stoke domestic demand, which is quite crucial, is access to credit. So it's consumer finance, it's uh, financial services and products. But that also, again, locks step with a lot of their policies for the internalization of the, of the renminbi. And one of the, the main aspects of obviously having a, um, not just a, um, a trading currency, a finan- but also a financial currency is depth and access to products that are denominated in renminbi. So all of those things fall together for us to, um, to, to look at basically the financial services sector, credit, um, consumer credit and so forth is, is, is definitely where we believe the, um, you know, the, next, the next real area is. And you're already seeing it in, in whether it's cross-border M&As and brokers and, and so forth, and, and obviously the breakneck pace of deregulation in the financial sector in the mainland. All right, Gavin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Gavin Parry, and he is the Managing Director of Parry International Trading. Yeah, China's economy uh, might or might not be slowing down. Uh, uh, Its financial services sector definitely building. But its property markets are showing diverse performance. Now, what does that mean? Let's ask Knight Frank's senior director, Thomas Lamb, who joins us on the show this morning. Good morning, Thomas. Hey, good morning. So uh, diverse performance, what exactly do we mean by that? You know, we're so used to thinking of uh, China's property market being a bubble. Uh, following the policy realization, what I can see is the resident price have improved in a number of cities in, in China, especially in the tier one cities, say Shenzhen. But uh, I can see there's uh, some direct uh, developers have uh, cut the price in some cities like the tier two and tier three cities and in the suburban areas. Now, uh, when you say they've cut the prices, what are we looking at? We're looking at commercial property? Uh, this is mainly on the residential. This is due to the oversupply and due to the high uh, stock levels in these cities. I see. And so as a result of this price cutting, are we actually going to see that demand is for these properties is stoked? Uh, the demand is still quite strong in the Tier 1 cities, but definitely there's uh, some uh, concerns on the Tier 2 cities. And uh, what could be done to change that? Uh, it really depends on the, uh, the government policy and the, uh, the interest rate. I see. So what would you say is your outlook for China's property market in the second quarter? Uh, in general, we expect uh, the residential price in tier one cities will in- continue to increase another, say, uh, 3 to 4% in the rest of this year. But for the less... Uh, but for the second tier cities, may only increase about say two to three percent. Connie, your well, thoughts? Yeah, with the hectic activities in the stock market, do you see any alteration in the property market in China? Uh, if you see the Asia's, um, the, uh, what I can see is uh, for many, it will in, uh, increase the demand for the residential properties in China, hmm. but not the mass residential. Right. And how would you say uh, China's slowdown affects the property market here in Hong Kong? Is there any correlation? Um, you can see that more and more uh, mainland Chinese uh, buyers, they purchase the properties overseas, not only in Hong Kong, but also in, like, in the UK and Australia and the US. 
And this is because of, you know, cooling measures from the government? Uh, this is mainly f- due to the cooling measures in China. I see. Connie, go ahead. Uh, so w- when they have so many choices um, overseas, will they dilute their kind of uh, enthusiasm for Hong Kong's housing market? Because a few years ago, there were a lot of complaints about how the mainland Chinese have propped up the market and, uh, you know, uh, leading to runaway prices. What do you see the, the, the prospect here? Yes, anyway, but uh, Hong Kong is one of the, the first favorites because they can still speak Mandarin in Hong Kong. Right. <laughs> okay, Thomas, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Thomas Lam, and he is the senior director at uh, Night Frank here in Hong Kong. Time to uh, quickly take a look at the numbers now before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down three-tenths of a percent to 20,333. Australia's ASX uh, 200 index and Seoul's Kospi are both down very slightly, 0.03% each. Uh, ASX 200 is currently at 5,539 and Seoul's Kospi at 2,041. Gold currently stands at $1,185.30 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $63.90. So, uh, Connie, we've got a lot going on this week. We've got the Fed meeting, which begins uh, later today, two-day process. We've got this Thursday meeting in Luxembourg on Greece. What are you expecting? The outcome of these events? Well, uh, <laughs> it's anybody's guess, but I, I think um, ultimately Greece have to, has to kind of agree to certain proposals and reform package um, or, or else they have no money. Uh, but but uh, if, if they don't, don't, don't uh, they will go default, then <laughs> I think there will be some short-term um, Volatility to the market in terms of the bond yields and everything else, but over the longer term, I think the the the, the effect will be probably not that big. It's after all, only one point three percent of the euro's economy. Mm. For the FOMC meeting, they may just um, continue with the language of a data dependent decision. Um, so, you know, we still wouldn't have a clue of when they were going to raise interest rates. Although in the market, there were sort of lots of uh, speculation on whether it's a September hike or December hike or even next year. Whatever the decision is, I think the interest rate hike would not be big. And even after the first rate hike, you would expect a very small and gradual uh, interest rate that is that, that increase that will be more or less factored in the market already. No doubt. I mean, but when you talk about data dependence, the data has been so unpredictable. You've got strong jobs, then you've got this manufacturing data, which uh, has come out sort of weaker than expected. It's kind of confusing, no? <laughs> yes, and also because in the first quarter, there, the, the data been skewed uh, and biased by the bad weather in winter. So, you know, it's difficult for the Fed to read whether it's just... Uh, a little uh, sort of uh, aberration in the in the in the curve, or actually, it is a big uh, difference. The other thing is, of course, um, the labour market is um, is um, not as you see. The unemployment rate is probably um, higher than than the headline rate because a lot of um, workers have actually 
um, okay, they have um, they have left the labor force, and some have rejoined because the prospects seem to be better. But the labor participation rate has been very low, and the and the wage increase has been much smaller than the historical average. So these are the things that weigh on the fast decision. Lots to look out for. All right, thank you for joining us this morning. That's Connie Balland. She is the founder and chief economist at Hong Kong Economic Research Analysis. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly fine, apart from isolated showers in the morning. Very, very hot. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 84%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The former Florida Governor Jeb Bush has formally announced that he'll seek the Republican nomination for the U.S. presidency. At a rally in Miami, Mr. Bush, whose father and brother have both held the highest U.S. office, vowed to fix the country, which he said was on a very bad course. Mr. Bush also criticized the Obama administration's foreign policy. From the beginning, our president and his foreign policy team have been so eager to be the history makers that they have failed to be the peacemakers. This supposedly risk-adverse administration is also running us straight in the direction of the greatest risk of all, military inferiority. It will go on automatically until a president steps in to rebuild our armed forces and take care of our troops and our veterans. And they have my word, I will do it. A white American woman who presented herself as black